This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 56 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we get perspective on the surge in South African coronavirus infections and mortalities. We take an in-depth look at an existential battle between companies and their insurers. And that's happening both here in South Africa and all around the world, but particularly in the United States. And sobering news that despite a $130 billion direct cash injection for 5 million businesses from the American government, between 20% and 30% of them are still expected to go bankrupt. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. South Africa's coronavirus cases are continuing to rise. Confirmed daily infections are now above 10,000 for the first time. That was recorded on Saturday. A record 173 mortalities were reported on Sunday, although the number was inflated by a mix-up in the Gauteng reports, with three days being reported together. The country remains fourth in the world on the rise in daily infections and on Sunday's inflated figure occupied sixth place on new deaths, sandwiched between Peru's 177 and Iran's 163. Brazil, Mexico and India at between 420 and 530 daily mortalities are now the world's three hardest hit countries and they're followed by the USA. Good news, however, is the growing belief that South African mortalities will be far lower than an originally projected 60 to 80,000. In Biz News Today, retired actuary Dave de Klerk crunched numbers which projects total mortalities of around 10,000. That's up from the current level, just over 3,000. And a number which aligns itself with the forecasts of Panda, a group of actuaries and professionals who have consistently criticized the much higher numbers upon which South Africa's economically destructive three-month lockdown was based. We'll have context on the latest infection surge from Dr. Ron Whelan in this episode. Only in South Africa, the two-year-old Gabola church, where booze is a critical part of the service, is running into trouble with the lockdown-inspired ban on alcohol. Here's David Doyle of Reuters. As South Africa eases its strict lockdown measures, groups of up to 50 worshippers have been allowed. Where is the blood, Jesus? But gathering to drink alcohol has not. For the Habola Church, that's a problem. The name means drinking, and booze is an essential part of their faith. Those people who are drinking, they were rejected from their apartheid or colonial churches to Habula Church. So we are using it as a holy sacrament of Habula Church. We baptize with it and then we welcome the new members in Habula Church with it. We are here. Church leader Pope Tietzi Makiti says Habola's congregation gets arrested when they try to hold their meetings in local bars. 
and have been moving from place to place to avoid detection by the authorities. But we are not worried about that. They can arrest us up until Jesus comes back. South Africa is suffering a rebound of coronavirus infections. On Thursday, it reported more than 8,000 new confirmed cases, its biggest daily jump. As of the end of Sunday, confirmed cases were approaching the 200,000 milestone, and the death toll had reached over 3,000. Apart from the ban on alcohol, the church, which was founded two years ago, observes all other coronavirus rules, including the limit of 50 people, the spacing out of chairs, and use of hand sanitizers. And for congregants like Nompilo Mpembe, it's a place to drink freely while worshipping, without, she says, having to hide who she is. Welcome to Dr. Ron Whelan, uh, Chief Commercial Officer of Discovery Health. You've been warning us, Ron, about this uh, surge that was coming, and my goodness, aren't we in the middle of it? Yeah, we certainly are in uh, the storm now, Alec, um, and we've been worried about this. Um, it's not dissimilar to our projections. Uh, the Discovery Actuaries have been working hard for the last several months, and in fact, yeah, their projections have been spot on. The worrying thing about the actuarial projections is we are tracking on the high road scenario. So yeah, actuaries obviously uh, do projections on, a, on various ranges. So we had a base case, we had a low range, we had a high road, and then we had an uncontrolled scenario. Fortunately, we're not on the uncontrolled scenario, but we are on the, on the high road. Uh, by the way, I think it's less of a, a second wave and more of a, a spread. Um, yeah, so it obviously started down in the Western Cape, the spread to the Eastern Cape. We're now starting to feed it in Gauteng. Uh, what we're also starting to see is the numbers are starting to pick up in KZN, uh, where we've obviously got an office. We're seeing some infections picking up in you know, north, northwest as well now. Um, I think uh, the, the important message, though, around this is you know, while it's spreading, um, the, the good news is uh, two things. Number one is the vast majority of infections still look like they're asymptomatic or very mild symptoms. That's an important point to log you know, for South Africa, and it's largely driven by a, a relatively youthful population. Good news is lots of asymptomatic infections. In fact, a study out of Italy last week pointed to the 64% of infections being completely asymptomatic, and I think we're seeing some of the trends play out in South Africa. Um, I think yeah, the second thing that is important to continue to log is a, South Africa's mortality rate, so the number of deaths divided by the total infection count remains low. So we are at 1.8% case fatality, case fatality rate. And that's much lower than your know, global averages as well. There was a report put out by the MRC that suggests uh, we are potentially undercounting some of the, the COVID deaths. So there is uh, a caveat around the 1.8% the that that may be a little bit higher. But even if it would double where it is at the moment, it's still relatively low uh, case, case fatality rates. Um, so Good news on the asymptomatic infections, good news on the uh, mortality rates, um, uh, but we are in the eye of the storm and we need to take all preventive uh, actions here possible. We've you know, got to maintain our social distancing, maintain our masks. It's probably going to be another two months of this. Ron, as far as the actuaries are concerned with the projections, uh, you said they have been spot on. How much longer do we have to brace ourselves for, i.e., any idea when the peak might be coming? Yeah, so, I mean, it varies province by province. The Western Cape looks like it may have peaked, so it's starting to flatten, and that's uh, um, in accordance with the actual projections. 
Gauteng and Eastern Cape on the way up. It looks like their peaks are projected for early August, um, yeah, perhaps a little bit later, perhaps a little bit earlier, and then yeah, the other provinces will follow. So, for instance, your yeah, northwest, the, the peak is projected towards yeah, the third or fourth week in, in August, and your yeah, KZN is a, in a similar fashion. So this is kind of going to roll through our provinces over the next two months or so. The important thing on the peak is that it doesn't come off entirely on the other side. Yeah, so we'll go up to a rising number of infections daily. It'll then you know, gradually taper off. If you look at you know, the European experience, it took you know, a good 10 to 12 weeks to come down the other side of the, the peak. Uh, so while you know, July and August will be tough, we will certainly have your know, continued infections through September, October, November as well. Um, that will you know, impact the, you know, the healthcare system and our communities. Real precautions now for the next year, two months, uh, but sustained precautions over a longer, longer period of time. And I think yeah, we're probably uh, going to have some remnants of COVID you know, well into the first half of next year as well that you know, we're going to continue to to deal with. Right? So don't set up any events or uh, gatherings or perhaps even Christmas uh, gatherings. Hopefully by that stage, families will be able to sit around the same table. But it, it sounds like this is still a long way to go. Yeah, we still got a long way to go. Um, and there's, there's no doubt about that. And our lives are going to change just slightly. I think you know, what will happen though, and you know, if we look towards, or look, if we look beyond peaks, and if we look at you know, other countries, the more people that get infected is also the more people that get immune to COVID. So we'll, we'll start you know, building up immunity across our populations. And, um, you know, the more immunity you know, we build, the better it is because, you know, those people will, you know, won't get you know, re- reinfected. So there is a, a positive side to the, the, the coin around in, in, you know, infections. Um, what we really want to prevent, though, is you know, any infections in our elderly, any infections in our, our high-risk groups. Um, you know, please, folks, we've got to wrap our, our parents and our grandparents in cotton wool for the next you know, few, few months. I'm certainly... You know, keeping my parents at a at a distance and you know, making sure that they're they're in, entirely safe. And for the rest of us, it's you know, regular precautions. Uh, you know, trying you know, as hard as possible not to to get the infection, and more importantly, not to transmit the infection. I'll see some behavioural change you know, across um, the South African landscape, where there's you know, some loosening of our uh, you know, protections. And you know, please, you you got to remain vigilant. You got to uh, continue to social distance, continue to wear masks. Um, it's both to protect yourself, but more importantly, to protect others. Ron, as far as uh, the infection and the uh, thereafter is concerned, if we have immunity against this COVID-19, is that necessarily going to help us with other coronaviruses? Because clearly this is not going to be, all the experts tell us, this isn't the last time we're going to be visited by one of these awful pandemics. Yeah, I mean, I think as we've spoken about previously, there have been seven uh, different coronaviruses over the years, including MERS in you know, the, the, around about 2010, and then you know, the SARS epidemic in the early 2000s. So those were two other coronaviruses. And then uh, there's three of the coronaviruses that cause the common cold. So the, they're actually they're in our environment all the time. They cause the common cold. We get over those you know, coronaviruses you know, easily. What we've got now is you know, SARS-CoV-2. It's a slightly different uh, you know, version of uh, coronavirus. So there's been a mutation in uh, you know, the DNA sequencing you know, in, in that virus. There's a, a pretty good chance that we end up with another version of coronavirus at some point. Uh, so 
potentially a SARS-CoV-3. And that will be different from this one because the sequencing in the, you know, the genome is you know, slightly different. There have been you know, mutations um, you know, in, in that. Unfortunately, we won't have immunity to that one um, because it's slightly different. It's the same as your flu virus on an annual basis. Um, you get flu every year. And the reason you can get flu every year is it's a slightly different version of the flu every year. Uh, flu virus mutates on an annual basis, and that's why we get flu repeatedly. Same goes for coronavirus. The next one we won't necessarily be immune to. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Asher Graveler is the chief risk officer at Suntum and a very hated man amongst many people in the country at the moment. We hear that you guys hassle and don't pay on the business interruption insurance. There's two sides to every story. What's your side? Yeah, well, it's obviously not nice to hear what's being said, but I think we do definitely have a side to tell. The reality is that we are paying claims. I think the biggest confusion to date is about exactly what is covered by the policies. And our policies are quite clear in that they require a business to be interrupted as a result of COVID-19. What this means is that a policyholder needs to show how a specific case of COVID-19 directly impacted their business. Seriously, seriously. I mean, the government has stopped business. You you can't go and do the business because of COVID-19. Sounds like a technicality to me. So let's look at that. I mean, what has caused those businesses to be interrupted? It's the national lockdown, correct? Correct. So what's clear from our policies is that the national lockdown is not a trigger to claim under your policy. And in fact, the market conduct regulators actually come out and state this quite categorically that the lockdown itself, it can't be the cause for your claim. You still need to show that you have been impacted by COVID-19 directly. And because of that, your business was interrupted. We had a lockdown because of COVID-19. Surely if there was no COVID-19, there would be no lockdown. I hear what you're saying, but that's not how the insurance policy works. Insurance policy requires a specific cause to trigger an event. So, for example, when you take out car insurance, a typical cause might be you're in an accident. Or if you have household insurance, a cause is, you know, my water heater burst and it flooded my bedroom and I have a claim. Similarly, with COVID-19, you have to be able to say, my claim is because of this. And this needs to be COVID-19. It can't be the lockdown. The lockdown is a government action that was never covered by our policies. If you, if you had come to us in January and said, I want to buy cover against the government shutting down the country, we would have said, sorry, that's not available in the market. No one offers that, nor, nor could we ever offer that. I really still think that you're playing with words here, but insurance companies are very famous at this. And it's not going to help your reputation at all. In a case like this, most people, most rational beings will say, well, COVID-19 arrived, the government reacted to COVID-19. Now you're saying that COVID-19 had nothing to do with it. It had everything to do with the fact that there was a lockdown in certainly the way that I would view the world. But you're saying to me, in my fine print, it doesn't cover you. The reputational damage of this, Asha, uh, no, surely you can't be thought about it. We're aware of the reputational damage. We see it in the papers every day. It's very, it's unpleasant to be on the receiving end of this, but we can only stay true to the core insurance principles. And 
One of the main insurance principles requires it to be a direct cause for you to institute your claim. Now, in most cases, the lockdown, which was not actually, which was actually just in response to stopping the spread of the disease. It wasn't because the disease was everywhere, because to stop the spread of the disease caused the losses. And the lockdown was not a, a peril that was covered by our policies. In fact, no policies offer that sort of cover, n- not from us or anywhere in the industry. And what and about elsewhere in the world? Uh, what about in the United States or the UK? Or, I mean, this has been a, a global pandemic. Yeah. So Have the insurance companies taken the same approach? Yes, it's pretty consistent worldwide. There are some cases in the UK where the wordings are a bit more um, lenient towards a lockdown situation. But for the most part, certainly in, in the US, uh, across uh, Asia, uh, everywhere else in the world, it, the approach of all insurers is very consistent in that this concept of causation that you actually need to show directly how your business was interrupted applies. So I guess the courts in South Africa are going to get very busy with this because many people are going to be suing you. There is another theory, and the theory is that if you did pay these claims, that Suntime itself would go out of business, that you don't actually have the reserves to meet all of the claims that that are possible. Is there any truth in that? No, there's no truth in that whatsoever. We have a very strong balance sheet, and even in a in an absolute worst case scenario, it would obviously be a big blow, but it, we would remain financially sound. And remember that this is the when I say worst case scenario, I say we are held to be liable for claims that we are categorically state that we are not uh, that have never been covered by our policies. Are you aware of what? Outsurance is done. In other words, they are paying out yeah. these claims. Yes. So outsurance have, have made a decision to do that. They are predominantly a personal lines insurer. They have a very, very, very small exposure to business interruption claims. And I can't speak for them, but it, in their life, it's, it's a, it, it probably made sense when they weighed up the possible reputational impact versus the the cost of just paying out their, their, their claims on their small exposure, they decided to do that. Today, if you're saying that Suntime could afford to meet all of these claims, but has chosen not to do so because of what for many people reputationally looks to have been a fine print issue, isn't that reputational damage potentially going to way far outweigh for many years to come any negative impact of doing so? No, I, I do hear what you're saying, and I guess that's that's the decision Outsurance took. For us, though, it really boils down to what are we obligated to pay under our insurance policies? And it's not just these policyholders that are affected. It's, you know, we have a vast array of policyholders in the industry, and we have to hold true to our, our principles around what is and what is not a valid claim. And if we paid a, a a huge amount of money out for this just to protect against reputational damage. I mean, it has an impact on, you know, the affordability of insurance for, for, for the rest of the market. We have to suddenly increase rates for everybody because of that. It, it's not a, an appropriate response uh, to this type of event. So what government has done effectively is put a whole lot of businesses into bankruptcy because even if they had taken the insurance policy out against something like this, it's not going to protect them. 
they, they're going out of business anyway. So government has effectively, what you're telling me, closed down a huge chunk of the South African economy by doing what it did on the lockdown. I don't think that's anyone's arguing with that. The, the uh, uh, national lockdown had a massive impact on the economy of South Africa. I think we, we understand some of the reasons why the government did it, but uh, there's huge economic losses resulting from this lockdown. The thing is, they are not insured losses, they're economic losses. So you could not, as a company, have protected yourself in any way against what the government has done? If you were insured looking for this sort of cover. Well, how do you protect yourself? You take insurance against Yeah, yeah, you, you, you could not do that. It was not, it was not possible to take that sort of insurance. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. The existential fight over business interruption insurance, which has been sold for over a century, is not only a South African phenomenon. In the litigation-crazy United States, it's a fight for many billions of dollars between millions, literally millions of companies, who claim the payouts are the only thing that will save them, and their insurers who are saying that paying out will actually bankrupt them. Here's a wonderful in-depth analysis from Ryan Knutson and Leslie Schism from our partners at the Wall Street Journal. After the pandemic hit and governments imposed broad shutdowns, many businesses were struggling to make ends meet. So some thought, hey, I got insurance. Some of them call their agents or their brokers and say, talk to me about this. Am I covered? All kinds of businesses, restaurants, gyms, coffee shops, started filing claims with their insurance companies to help cover their losses during the shutdown. One of them was Eric Bayless, who owns a group of restaurants in Chicago. He had just furloughed 400 and some employees, and he knew he was going to need money to cover his utilities, his rent. He was going to need a payout from the insurance company to help him with the reopening costs whenever that was going to occur. So he was counting on this money. He was counting on it. Eric's company is one of the millions of businesses in the U.S. with a type of insurance coverage called business interruption insurance. This type of coverage has been around for a long time. Business interruption insurance dates to the early 1900s. It was originally sold to these manufacturers who had boilers and other equipment that might fail. So the coverage provides for money to be paid by the insurance company to these businesses to tide them over until their businesses get back and up and running again. You know, once the boilers are repaired or the fire damage has been repaired, the building rebuilt perhaps. So it basically covers lost income plus operating expenses during the period that you're shut down. So it's sort of like your equipment is damaged. We're going to insure and cover that. But we're also going to cover some of the revenue that you would have had in this period when the machine wasn't working. Right. To business owners like Eric, this business interruption coverage was the perfect claim that he could make to recoup some of the money that he was losing because of the coronavirus. The pandemic had definitely interrupted his business. But the insurance money didn't come. His claim was rejected. He was told he had to have physical damage to his business to get the money. He said, I felt I took a gut punch when my 
representatives of the insurance company told me I had no coverage. And here I am just learning. The insurance company is saying, sorry, you had to have property damage before we're going to make a payment. It just doesn't make sense to the business owners. They feel like, I got insurance and I ought to pay out. Other businesses were hearing the same thing. And some claims were being rejected because of a specific exclusion written into the contract. The language is fairly plain English. And it appears in policies in bold-faced capital letters at the top of a page. The language is, and I quote, exclusion of loss due to virus or bacteria, end quote. Wow. A year ago, nobody reading a policy would have been on the lookout for language like that. Because who possibly envisioned the shutdowns that we're having today? But people at insurance companies are exactly the type of people who envision things like a shutdown caused by a pandemic. The SARS epidemic of the early 2000s was a wake-up call for the insurance industry of what might happen in the future with another virus. So a lot of insurers had started using this exclusion after 2006. This language is believed to be in at least 50% of the policies that businesses hold. It may be in as many as 70% of the policies. For businesses with insurance policies that have this virus exclusion line in their contract, there's not much they can do about it. They're basically out of luck. But for businesses without that exclusion, the lawyer, John Hotelling, who hosted that fancy dinner party, was trying to figure out a way to get the insurance companies to pay up. John thought there might be a way around the insurance company requirement that businesses had to have physical property damage. He thought he could make a case that the coronavirus droplets are physical damage, that they stick to surfaces and make it unsafe to be at work. John and his associates went looking for precedent for other cases in which particles, gases, or smells had been considered physical damage. And he found some. One of the cases involves ammonia that was mistakenly released in a factory. And there was so much of this ammonia that the employees couldn't go in this factory building. That owner had sought a business interruption payout. And a judge ruled that, yeah, that ammonia, even though it was going to dissipate over time and didn't require any rebuilding or repairs of the factory, for a period, it made that factory uninhabitable. So that was one. And then there was another case, which was in Oregon, where a Shakespeare festival that had outdoor performances was forced to cancel some of those outdoor performances because there was such heavy smoke in the air from nearby wildfires. Mm. They got a favorable ruling that that smoke counted as property loss. They at least temporarily lost the use of their outdoor theater. One other case involves the smell of cat urine in a condo building. So they were able to find at least four or five cases that things that were somewhat temporary in nature and once they dissipated, they didn't necessarily require any kind of quote-unquote, rebuilding or repairs of the actual building. But the judges were persuaded that that created enough of a property loss that a claim could go forward. With this basis for a legal argument, John started jumping on phone calls. 
He lobbied public officials, asking them to write language into their shutdown orders that said the virus being in and around businesses caused physical damage. And ultimately, at least 14 or 15 orders have included a reference to the danger that the virus poses to property itself in creating a dangerous situation and damaging property. John thought that having that written into shutdown orders would make it easier for him to make the argument about property damage in court. But that wasn't his only move. John got on the phone with some of his famous friends in the restaurant business, people like Wolfgang Puck and Thomas Keller. They talked about the insurance problems they were having and formed a group called the Business Interruption Group. These prominent chefs started doing interviews, talking about what was happening with their insurance. Four of them were even able to land a phone call with President Trump. It's not completely unexpected when you remember that President Trump is a real estate developer and he's had nice restaurants in some of his buildings. Some of these chefs are people that Trump himself has mingled with in other settings. Mm -hmm. So four of these chefs were able to get a phone call on March 29th. And they chatted about how they were really struggling with their insurance companies and just were hoping there was something the president could do to stop these insurance companies from rejecting them. Two weeks after that call, the president brought up the issue at a public briefing. I would like to see the insurance companies pay if they need to pay, if it's fair. And they know what's fair and I know what's fair. I can tell you very quickly. But John and his group weren't just making phone calls. The splashiest element in John's strategy was a massive PR campaign. In May, John and his allies launched a video that went up on a giant billboard in Times Square. It features Whoopi Goldberg. Insurance companies and the federal government need to do the right thing now. In addition to a dancer, a musician, a chef, a rabbi. If you're not there for us now, then when will you be? all basically saying that this business interruption insurance is really vital to the ability of these New York institutions to get back on their feet. Insurance companies do the right thing. With all this effort, the Times Square ad, the pressure campaign on government officials, and the lawsuits that are starting to come in, many businesses are hoping that they're closer to getting the insurance money that could save them. But the insurance industry won't give up that easy. So this is a pretty intense campaign that John Hotelling and his group are running. They're calling government officials. They're on the phone with the president. They've got this ad running in Times Square. How is the insurance industry responding to this campaign? The industry has been making a pretty forceful argument that it never intended for the policies to cover pandemics, that it would just make no sense for them to do that. It would be suicide to offer such coverage. Why? Well, the whole concept of insurance is that a lot of people pay in and in any given year, only a limited number will actually draw money out. Let's say you have a 100 people in a little town who pay insurance and then maybe two or three of them have a fire in any given year. Thus, there's enough to cover their claims and the profit for the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. So when you have a pandemic, you have everybody paying in. But lo and behold, everybody claims at the same time. Uh That won't work. The insurance industry is saying that they don't have enough money to pay out all these claims at once. But not everyone buys that argument. 
One analyst that Leslie spoke to estimated that worst case, insurance companies could be liable for about $25 billion of business interruption claims. And she estimated that the industry could absorb a lot more than that, up to $150 billion. But the insurers say, no, no, no. You know, we can't go around using money that basically supports their solvency. And don't forget the insurance company are saying, we need to have that money because we're now in hurricane season. Mm. That started June 1. And we're going to have wildfires. So the insurers are saying, we can't send all this out the door to these people who had business interruption claims because we may need it for this hurricane season or for wildfires. That is what the money's for. What are executives in the industry saying about this? A growing number of them are increasingly outspoken on the subject. For example, Evan Greenberg, who's the chief executive of Chubb Limited, and he expressed some of the thoughts in a first quarter earnings call in April. And at that point, he said, Lawyers and the trial bar will try to prove something exists that actually doesn't exist. And the industry will fight this tooth and nail. We will pay what we owe. Those are kind of the fighting words you're hearing out of C-suites. And those fights are starting to spill into the courts. Other lawyers agree with John that businesses should be covered and are testing the theory out. One case in New York took the theory head on. A publication called Social Life Magazine sued its insurance provider for a business interruption claim of nearly $200,000. The lawyer for the magazine said the coronavirus had damaged the property. But in the hearing, the judge didn't seem convinced. The judge said the virus, quote, damages lungs. It does not damage printing presses. You know, what she said was New York law is clear that to tap into business interruption coverage, you're going to need some damage to property. She told the lawyer for the magazine, you get a gold star for creativity. It seems like so far, John Hotelling's theory here about property damage coming from the fact that there's droplets of the virus on surfaces isn't really working so far. It's too early to say that. Uh-huh. You know, this one New York judge didn't go for it, but this is state-by-state state stuff. Leslie and other insurance experts have seen before how the insurance industry can start out confident and still wind up losing billions of dollars. It happened in the 90s with asbestos. They started out in this asbestos fight, you know, decades ago saying, we got this, we're good, our policies don't cover this. But the tide turned eventually, and they ultimately got stuck with about $100 billion in liability they hadn't expected. It's a risk when you have a lot of lawsuits being filed in a lot of different courts. Leslie says that some sympathetic judges will interpret the language in these contracts as broadly as possible and rule in favor of businesses, which could save some of the ones struggling right now. But no matter what happens, this situation has raised a big question about what insurance is really for. Insurance companies want to present themselves as being there at all times and being essential in the lives of their customers. But in doing so, it can foster this notion that they cover absolutely everything. But they don't. And in the future, if they lose these cases, they might cover even less. Some people fear that if the insurance industry 
suffers a lot of losses here, they'll just cancel this line of coverage. They may just say, you know what, we offered that because it was a good way to help our policyholders who had fires or hurricanes or suffered other kind of damage that we saw as being covered by these policies. But if we're going to be sued right and left by lawyers seeking to broaden that, and that's not what we mean to do, we'll just have to cancel the whole line. But for now, the industry is setting up to fight the hundreds of cases that have already been filed and the new cases being filed every week. It's just two very different points of view that are colliding, and we don't know what the outcome's going to be. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. While many small businesses in South Africa feel they've been left to fend for themselves, in the United States, an astonishing 5 million SMEs are benefiting from a $130 billion aid package. Even so, 20 to 30% of America's small businesses are expected to go bankrupt. Here's our partners at Bloomberg, who spoke to Karen Mills of Harvard, who was small business advisor to President Barack Obama. The Senate passed an extension of the popular Paycheck Protection Program for small businesses, which was set to close down last night with more than $130 billion in funding left over. The extension goes to August 8th. To get a, a latest on the PPP and where the money is going, we welcome Karen Mills. She's a senior fellow at the Harvard Business School, uh, former small business administrator for President Obama from 2009 to 2013. Karen, thanks so much for joining us here. So I guess the question is, how effective do you think um, the PPP has been for small businesses in this country? Well, I think it's been very effective, and I was delighted by our midnight surprise last night. I really um, had not anticipated that the Senate would take leadership and renew the PPP. $130 billion is a lot of money in the land of small business. And so far, the results out of the PPP have actually been pretty good. I know the headlines have been about, you know, big companies who didn't need it, who took it, but Literally 5 million small businesses have gotten funding without which they would just not be alive today. So if we can get a little bit more out, I think we can save some more businesses. Karen, what about those that opened and have to now reclose because the virus is actually not going away at all? The curve is steepening in the U.S. And not just those that reopened and have to close, but those who took the money and kept people on their payrolls and are not getting the revenue, and, you know, this will finish them. Well, you're exactly right. Uh, You know, the virus is not done yet. And even though, you know, there's been an attempt at all these reopenings, small business owners are worried, their customers are worried, and they're desperate, you know, because otherwise they're going to go out of business. So anything we can do to get money into their hands so they can, you know, survive, whether they're partially open, whether they just do takeout. We just need to get them funding because, as you know, small businesses have almost no cash reserves. And whatever they had, that's gone by now. So they are just living hand to mouth. And if we can, um, what I'd really like to do with this extra money is let them apply again because the PPP extension would only go to new folks who haven't applied. And I'd like to let, you know, 
uh, eligible businesses get another few weeks uh, of funding if they possibly can. I think that would be helpful. Karen, what do we know about uh, where the initial chunk of money went? We, is, there, is there a good sense that there's oversight there, that we kind of know where the money went, who got it, who didn't get it, and, and so on? <laughs> well, it's ridiculous that the SBA is not disclosing this. We disclosed everything. It's just table stakes. You know, the American people need to, to know where their money is used. Um, so I can't imagine why you wouldn't disclosed and now they've said they're going they're going to what we do know is that about 5 million small businesses got money most of them got small amounts and thank goodness we had some um new players some tech players step in and help the banks cuz the banks were really struggling to get the small players their money they just didn't have the mechanism so then PayPal came in and Square and Intuit, and they put up these automated portals, which still are up, and allowed the sole proprietors who are eligible, they actually are eligible for PPP, a seamless way without going to a bank. Maybe they didn't have a bank. So that's done a lot of good to um, the small business owner. But disturbingly, there is an underrepresentation of minority-owned businesses in the PPP, and that's from some survey data from Alignable, and I think that's quite worrisome. would like to see that percentage go up because, as you know, there's a lot of inequity in the access to capital among underserved minority-owned businesses and, by the way, among women-owned businesses. And if yes. they fail in greater proportions, that's just going to hurt everything. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of problems with it in many, many ways. Karen, talk to me, though, about what you would do if you were, say, a restaurant owner or, you know, the owner of a franchise of, of some chain of restaurants, and you knew that in order to access this money, you had to keep on 75% of your staff, but you're also pretty well aware that you're not going to be able to do 75% of your business, even in six months, yet this is only supposed to tide you over for two months. I mean, wouldn't you much rather just fold up shop in order not to get up the hopes of all your previous employees, all your customers, your family? So small business owners now um, really are in a dilemma. And I think what they've realized is if you want to keep your business going, you've got to maintain some relationship with your set of employees. The good news is that Congress actually passed something called the Flexibility Act a few weeks ago, and they took that 75% number down to 60%. So only 60% of the money has to pay employees. They gave you more weeks to spread it over. And what that does is allow a business to stay closed longer and take that other 40% of the money and pay the rent and pay for utilities and pay for debt service if they've got another loan. So it's well worth doing. And if you're a small business owner out there and Congress does get their act together and the president does sign an extension to PPP, I would go right away to one of these online portals or your bank. And uh, if you haven't gotten one of these loans, I, I have to say, even if you're closed, you will find it useful and your people will get paid and you'll keep your relationship with them. You'll get to pay your rent. So I think it is well worth doing. And the forgiveness aspect, 
they are saying they're going to do blanket forgiveness and very small dollar loans. So I would recommend doing it. So, Karen, what are we seeing on the, on the you know, um, for these small businesses? How many of them are, in fact, going out of business? How many do you expect to go out of business uh, during, due to this pandemic? Well, when you talk about this uh, percentage going out of business, you know, my heart just, yep. uh, you know, rings on that because I think it's going to be very bad. Yep. My prediction is 20 to 30 percent of small businesses will fail. Mm-hmm. Right now we're seeing 5 to 10 but we really haven't seen the bankruptcies come. And that's going to happen in, I would say, two to four months uh, will be the peak of that. And the reason the number is so high in part is, sadly, there are a lot of businesses operating just on the edge. And particularly we've seen in the older generation, people will just pack it in. They'll just say, you know what, um, I'm going to fold my tents. This is the time. So that is going to account for some percentage, and that will come all at once, not distributed over a year or two years. And the problem with a number like 20 or 30 percent means that it's very hard to have a U-shaped recovery Mm. because it takes 6 to 12 months to get a new business started on Main Street. So. It's Karen's, going to be a while before yeah, they get replaced. It's going to be heartbreaking, and uh, hopefully it will lead to some sort of rebirth of entrepreneurialism at some point in this country. Karen Mills, former SVA head, currently senior fellow at the Harvard Business School. Thank you for joining. This has been episode 56 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.